0: We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings independent and interesting STEM, so that's science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine, to you from Tasmania. This show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium news station, so head on over to edge.org.au for more information about them. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawan Pakana. We're recording here on Luchuita, but as this is a podcast, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from where you are listening from. On behalf of everyone here, I pay my respects to Elders past and present. My name is Ollie Dove and welcome listeners to the first of a three-part space mini-series. We're opening the series today with a super exciting episode in that we are currently sat in a radio astronomy museum and surrounded by lots of funky items and dishes and lots of things that I don't understand but we're going to hear about. I'm joined by my co-host Georgia Stewart and I'm going to pass the mic on over to her to introduce our guest for today. Thanks, Ollie. Hi, everyone. Today, Twix is on the road
1: out at the Mount Pleasant Observatory, located near Cambridge in the southern part of Tasmania. We'll be talking with one of our Twix team members and newly minted PhD graduate, Dr. Simmon Salopore. We'll talk a little bit about her research, her journey, and get into a lot of the exciting science outreach she's been a part of over the last few years. Simon. You've done a fair bit of editing for this podcast series, but this is your first episode. Welcome and massive congratulations on finishing your PhD. It must have been a really long journey. How does it feel to be done?
2: Oh, hello. Thank you very much. Yeah, (laughs) it was a very, very long journey for me and with a lot of challenges. And now I feel very relaxed and comfortable. It's done and I'm here with you guys and I'm very happy to be in your podcast today. And our podcast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, Simon, your field of research for your PhD was in geodetic VLBI, VLBI being very long baseline interferometry. It's a bit of a mouthful. We know from Jim Lovell's episode a few weeks back that this involves using several radio telescopes separated by large distances to determine how points on the surface of the earth move and change over time. It's a very fascinating and very interesting bit of science. Can you tell us how you came to study this and, and what was your educational background that led you to studying this?
2: Um, yeah, very long baseline interferometry. We call it VLBI. And uh, it's a technique uh, being used for different part of you know, astronomy and astrometry and also geodesy. Uh, geodesy is the, the science of uh, measuring Earth's parameters. And uh, how I came here, it's kind of a funny story, because my background was in physics and cosmology, theoretical cosmology, uh, study of the evolution of the universe. But then um, I thought I want to do something practical, because back in my country, we didn't have the radio telescopes at that time. Now we have one. Uh, they built it in 2019. Um, Then, yeah, I decided to do the practical stuff. I've looked around, do the investigation, and realized that UTES have a good um, reputation in radio astronomy. And I decided to do radio astronomy and try it. And I didn't know anything about the geodesy, but I came here. I've done astrophysics and geodesy both together.
0: Can you tell us a bit more about what radio astronomy means? uh... yeah of course um...
2: radio astronomy is quite different from optical astronomy probably a lot of people uh... more familiar with the optical ones the telescopes that we can see through working with the visible light but with the radio astronomy we are working with a different part of um spectrum which is radio waves and Jim, uh, Jim Lovell explained it very well in his episode, so I refer <laughs> listeners to that episode. But uh, what we are doing, we are receiving signals, invisible light, from uh, different objects. So different objects in the sky, um, stars, planets, black holes, ca- uh, galaxies, anything up there, uh, they can emit um, in the range of uh, different frequencies. And one of them are the invisible light, which is the uh, radio waves. And we are using antennas to receiving those um, invisible lights and frequencies and then trying to convert them to the way that we can actually do the studies and seeing them. So Simon, what was the specific focus of your PhD? It's a bit of uh, different stuff, but my focus was um, in Geodetic VLBI, we are using um, point sources in the sky, which are not actually point sources. They have a structure. They are supermassive black holes. We call them quasars. But in geodesy, because they are very, very far from us, they consider them as a point-like sources and then uh, consider them as a reference points, and then they can do the measurements based on the signal they are receiving from them uh, in different telescopes. But uh, with improving the technology and removing a lot of errors and uh, the other effects, for example, from the atmosphere and the uh, uh, instruments and everything, now it's the time to remove and consider, actually, the structure of those sources. So my PhD was about to uh, show that those uh, effects from the structure are kind of fairly uh, huge, especially for the new uh, observations and trying to mitigate them or at least uh, introduce some method for those.
0: As someone who's completely working outside of this topic and knows, has like heard none of these words before, or at least before Jim's episode, the concept that it's called very long baseline interferometry makes me laugh that it's very long. That sounds like quite funny for um, a sci- scientific term. Is there such a thing as LBI? Oh, good question. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs>
2: I've never looked into it, but we have um, LBA which is a long baseline array of telescopes. They are located in in uh, North America. But yeah, very long baseline interferometry. I was just working with that technique. Uh, I, I definitely Google it after this session to see if it is such a thing in, in astronomy, at least, yeah.
1: So were there any interesting or surprising things that you found during your PhD research?
2: I don't know. I mean, one of the interesting things that I received or heard from um, people, especially public, when I mentioned that I'm doing the radio astronomy, they were asking about the wow signal. That was very interesting for me. I've never heard that, you know, when you're doing academic jobs, you never heard about the wow signal. It seems that there was a signal and they didn't know the origin for long amount of time. And then, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in the recent years or a couple of years ago, they they uh, do the more investigation and they thought it's from one of the objects, it wasn't from the UFOs, because uh, actually for uh, for, um, searching for UFOs or strange creatures or smart and intelligent creatures outside our galaxy, people using the radio astronomy, so the same setup, but um, looking for different objects, (laughs) which is the, yeah. It's a cool thing about uh, radio astronomy.
0: And would you say it's likely that there are UFOs out there? To put you on the spot with a potentially difficult question.
2: Uh, it might be. I mean, the universe is very, very big, and we just um, explore five percent of it because we we have the you know the ability to explore five percent, and the rest ninety. 5% is dark energy and dark matter. And it might be some kind of, you know, the theory, it's mentioning there are, there, there might be multiple universe and all those stuff. So anything can happen. And actually, I was, uh, get into astronomy and especially cosmology because of the movie Contact. It was about, you know, looking for the UFOs. And that was, yeah. They, they were using the radio uh, telescopes to find, you know, some other um, intelligence outside our galaxy. And it was, it's, it's, it was science fiction, but it can happen. It's all starting from the science fiction and imagination, and one day it can be true. So now that you've finished up with PhD life, which I'm sure you're very glad about, <laughs> what are you up to now? Uh, I'm doing different stuff. <laughs> I'm one of the, per- the people that I want to try different stuff. The, so, at the moment, I'm working and have a collaboration with a company more related to earth science stuff. So, uh, doing the programming, problem solving, and then advising the clients about the disaster management, like white love fire or, uh, you know, the flooding and all these kind of cool things. Um, so, it's like I started with the cosmology evolution of the universe, but then... Came coming to the Geodetic VLBI, now I'm back on Earth and helping, you know, and using all my skills to help the Earth now and near future. And besides that, I'm working um, mostly in the science communication things like the guiding tours in this museum and the observatory, which is very exciting, especially when the little kids coming and have a look around and getting excited. Um, do some public um, talks especially in the again
0: festivals for more public and that's a great segue because we're going to be hearing more about that work in part three later on so stick with us listeners for part two as we delve into simmons journey from iran to australia to pursue radio astronomy
1: You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today Ollie and I are talking with newly minted PhD student Dr Simon Salapour about her journey into radio astronomy coming from Iran to Australia. So Simon, Iran is a fair distance away from Australia. When you arrived here, did you notice any academic differences between the two countries that you had to adapt to and what were the big challenges for you on that path?
2: Oh, yeah, very, very far from uh, my home country, Iran. Uh, yeah, uh, a bit of difference. Um, as I mentioned, that we didn't have the radio telescope, while we have a lot of radio telescopes around Australia, and especially Utah's have um, six of them at the moment. Yeah, six working and one uh, on hold. <laughs> and so it's one of the uh, facilities that it's different from my country. The other thing was quite... Um, I can say shocking for me was the number of girls and women in um, STEM. Being Iranian and, you know, a a a woman in the Middle East, it's coming with a lot of limitation. And when I came here, I expect to see a lot of women, you know, doing science and everything they want because we are doing it there. (laughs) And you can see a lot of students, women and girls uh, at the universities. And it's all coming with all those limitations. When I came here, I expect at least the same thing, but then I surprised that not seeing girls and women around. So it was shocking. (laughs) So I I hope that women would, you know, come more to science because the diversity is important and it can help to improve the the society and the science and engineering and whatever they want to do. But yeah, have the courage to come. And, of course, the relationship between the supervisor and students, it's uh, more formal in my country. Uh, Here it's more friendly. I really like it because it gives you the uh, comfort and you you can easily discuss what has come to your mind and you're not feeling, you know, less educated or not, not knowledgeable about, you know, a lot of things because everyone can have some knowledge in what extent and even a supervisor or a lecturer can have lack of I can say knowledge in one part, but super intelligent or smart in another part. So it actually this comfortable conversation would help with uh, um, improving your personality and knowledge and uh, actually the education.
0: That's so fascinating how you said that the, it was the reverse or not what you expected in terms of women and girls uptake in STEM here. Would you have any pieces of advice, for example, if a parent was listening and their daughter did want to get into STEM or how can they help encourage and nourish that?
2: Oh, that's a very important um, question and actually um, things that you brought up. Uh, yeah, my parents were very supportive of towards yeah, the education of three of us. Yeah, I have a sister and my brother. So no difference between, you know, because two of us are... Girl, so maybe we are into, we should be into more kind of soft stuff, and because I have my brother, he should go definitely to engineering, so we were um, free to choose what we want to do, but uh, the education was the first thing we, we have to actually it was a must in our family, even among our cousins and everybody everyone. so um, parents can play a very, very important role. Um, Some parts can come from the financial support because um, when you have more freedom, you know, with a lot of things uh, in your life, then you can think about education and other stuff might be expensive for you as a young person and also providing the environment to be in touch with uh, these different uh, fields or area in science. So if you can see or go to the workshops or museum or other places, open days, or going to the university, have a look around as a tour, you can decide that, oh, it it might be a place that I want to be. And also kind of having the insight what, what else is out there. For example, for myself, I've never had the chance to come to see the radio astronomy or radio telescope, so I've never thought about that, so I went to, to the cosmology. I was obsessed with, with astronomy, but I've never thought I would do the radio telescope. But as soon as um, I do the research and getting exposed to the information about the radio astronomy, I fell in love with that, and then here I am. And so, yeah, sometimes lack of information kind of uh, stops you from doing what you might be very good at it. So parents can actually provide that um, kind of um, area and environment for the uh, young kids. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. You
1: don't know what you don't know, right? Um, So as an international researcher, then what advice would you give to others when considering moving abroad to
2: study, particularly in the science fields? Oh, yeah. for me it was a little bit difficult uh, again because I'm from um, Middle East and uh, contacting people and have the connection it's quite different and difficult but um, for, for the other people who are living in more open uh, country they have collaboration probably between the different countries and universities they can use for example exchange um, students programs and try you know, to see if they can face the challenges. Different, obviously, being away from your hometown, your family, it's a big deal, so you would be homesick, and, and then finding new friends uh, in the new place, it's another thing, but uh, actually, when you overcome to your fears, then new window and doors can be open to you, and you can experience a lot of things, and then uh, you can uh, learn more things. And then if you need those skills, you can come back to your country, for example, and then um, use those for um, empower the people and uh, your friends uh, in your hometown, for example. So uh, yeah, it's a bit of difficulties, challenges, but a lot of things that you can put in your backpack, bring it to your, you know, to your life.
1: Thanks for that advice, Simon. That's yeah, that's amazing and amazing to hear about your journey coming from a culture that is so different to that in Australia. Stick with us for part three as we hear about Simon's passion for science communication and her involvement with the Grote Reba Museum in Tasmania.
0: Welcome back, listeners. This week, we're chatting to Simin Salapur. During Simin's PhD, she was also actively involved in many different science communication endeavours, which included working on this podcast and included being in a play with myself and Hannah Moore, one of the other Twix members. So, Simin, has science communication always been a passion of yours or something that you found a love for since being here in Tasmania? Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, that experience was great last year. And I'm very
2: happy to know both of you and working on tweaks now. (laughs) Um, Back in Iran, no. Actually, I wasn't involved with the science communication. Even though I was a teacher and a lecturer and dealing with a lot of kids, um, uh, I I love teach kids, especially the way that I learn physics. And because sometimes it's very difficult for them dealing with all the equations and, you know, (laughs) those solid things. And the way to show them the beauty of physics, and especially astronomy, it was my passion all the time, but I've never had the chance to do it uh, back in my country. When I came here, um, it's one of those doors that I told you would be open to you. Uh, Even English wasn't my mother tongue, and it was difficult to sometimes communicate (laughs) and finding the correct word. (laughs) But then I decided to kind of um, sharing my experience and I thought I have to tell people, especially little kids, that if I could do that, you can do that too. So that gave me that passion and courage to do that. And the other thing was the opportunity at university. So we have this museum, they looking for the tour guides for um, showing the museum and the radio astronomy and cool stuff in astronomy. And yeah, I was a PhD student. It was a casual job as well, so a bit of money at the same time. And I could show the people in public and talking about the cool side of my uh, study, not just dealing with the coding and maths. So that part was the fun part of my uh, study. And uh, then gradually I started to have the public talks, um, like the science in pop. And uh, in Astronomical Society of Tasmania, I gave a talk there. And also, I have actually two other um, events I, I, I would present, which would be Winter Festival of Clarence, and the other one is uh, Beaker Street. Yeah, it's one of the other uh, options that I had at UTAS because of the museum and the nice people that let me do it and show me how to do the, um, you know, the science communication stuff.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. And we've talked a bit about the museum. It's popped up several times throughout the uh, episode. And f- so for the listeners who um, can't see what all the cool stuff we're looking at here at the moment, can you tell us uh, more about this museum? Um, what's in it and what's it for?
2: This museum, it's all about the Gro River, who was the first uh, radio astronomer. Uh, most of these bits that you can see around, it belongs to him. Uh, he was the first person who built the radio telescope back in 1937. He he was a, an engineer, but he was obsessed with the astronomy. He thought, okay, if people using the antennas to receiving signals, sending signals, why we are not receiving signals from the space? So he's done a lot of things, but he ended up in Tasmania. So that's an advantage to be in Tasmania because Tasmania is quite a unique place for radio astronomy, especially back at that day. Uh, we didn't have that much noise around, mobiles, TVs, or you know airplanes. So, and of course, the latitude and longitude in southern hemisphere it was imp- important for radio astronomy. So he came here. He, uh, he built a radio telescope, an array of telescope actually, in Bothwell and we have all these things from his journey in Tasmania, what he's done. So we're showcasing uh, what he's done during his life in uh, radio astronomy. Besides that, people can actually come and visit us, the museum, and also enjoy the scenery of the radio telescopes we have, and um, the control room, obviously, what we are doing in the present, Uh, and also we have 3D movies which the exciting part of the museum, kids love it.
0: How can our listeners find out more about the museum or maybe book a tour?
2: Uh, it's, all the information are in the website, uh, the Growth River Museum website. Um, you can easily Google the name and all the information coming up in the website. There is a link, so you can go there and book a tour via an email or call the, um, the physics department at UTAS. Because uh, it's not open all day. So you need to book a tour. They have to assign a tour guide for you so they can show you around. And it's usually a one and a half hour of the tour. So showing the museum, the control room, the telescope, and at the end, the 3D movies. So this
1: museum contains so many interesting artifacts from Greta Reber's life. I noted before when we were having a look around that there's a collection of the little bits at the end of pencils because he never liked to throw out a pencil and preserve the little tiny stump at the end.
2: What's your favorite item from the collection? Oh, (laughs) it's difficult to choose but I actually have two items. Um, I like them a lot. One is the pixie car which is the electric car back in, you know, at those times we didn't have Tesla, (laughs) but uh, he built that electric car because he was very obsessed with, um, you know, um, clean energy. And he was using it to moving around. Sometimes it was difficult for the, uh, you know, people, uh, uh, local people because the car speed was quite low, (laughs) so it was kind of blocking the roads. But still, uh, it was a good idea to using the clean energy. And the other thing is uh, we have a piece of letter about the future of mankind, his opinion about the future of mankind. So I'm not uh, telling
0: what's in there, so I encourage you to come and read it yourself. That is awesome. That's a nice little tease to get our listeners down here. It is a really incredible museum, so definitely recommend it. Unfortunately, we've run out of time to hear more from Simon today, but make sure you tune in, listeners, for the next two episodes as you'll hear more from Simmon talking with others that work here at the museum and the observatory. So thanks for listening to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you STEM-related content, and we really hope you enjoyed the show. If you loved listening today, you can get in touch with us by searching That's What I Call Science or That's Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. My name is Ollie Dove and I'd like to extend a huge universe-wide thank you to my co-host, Georgia Stewart, and our guest, Dr. Simon Salapour. From us, have a wonderful week. This program was
1: made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au you've been listening to that's what i call science brought to your station and across the nation via the community radio network you can find that's what i call science at all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team that's what i call science is proudly recorded in tasmania at edge radio head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of that's what i call science Gemmaker provide expert advice, services, and training to commercialize new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.